If you would, uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 21. Um, I, I made an executive decision that we will not read the entire passage that's listed there. I, I walked through it the other day, and it was close to eight minutes. So uh, because the sermon will focus largely on Paul's speech in Acts chapter 22, that's what we're going to read this morning, and I'll kind of give a, a really brief overview of what leads up to that, but we won't read it for our reading uh, today. So if you're able, uh, would you stand with me as we read from Acts chapter 22, starting in verse 1, and uh, it's, if you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 931. Pay careful attention, this is God's Word. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard, this, this is Paul speaking, I should say, and when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priests and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, 
Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Please be seated. Would you pray with me? O Lord, by the word of your power, you created the heavens and the earth in the space of six days and declared it all very good. That same powerful word is at work today. And so as we have read your word, uh, we pray that you would be present with us in power by your spirit uh, to again bring life uh, to us. We pray that you would bring light into our darkness and that your Holy Spirit, who inspired Luke to record these things for us and for our instruction, would illumine our hearts to understand these things that have been written, to believe them, to lay them up in our hearts, and to practice them in our lives. And Lord, we pray that you would help us, as always, to see Jesus. For we pray in his name. Amen. Never underestimate the power of personal encounter. I had a professor in college. He was one of my favorite professors. He taught the religion classes that I took. And he had, in a former career, been a Catholic priest, a highly educated, a very interesting guy. And I was having a conversation one, with him one day in the hallway because he was no longer a priest. He was now married, had children, and was teaching in this university setting. And, and we were friends, and so I was poking a little bit. I said, tell me your story. How, how did this happen that you uh, used to be a priest and now you're not, and now you're married and have children. Like, what happened to make this radical change in your life? And he said, well, I met my wife, and that was it. He had met his wife uh, in the church where he was serving, and that encounter with the woman who would be his future wife radically changed the whole course of his life. He abandoned uh, the priesthood. He didn't abandon his faith or anything, but he abandoned his, the priesthood and uh, was married to this woman and, and living uh, with her and, uh, and their children, having a happy life. Never underestimate the power of personal encounter with another to change you. What we read in this passage is Paul's own account of his personal encounter with the risen Lord Jesus uh, in this speech that he gives in defense of these charges that are being brought against him by this angry mob. And so what I'd like to do this morning is look at kind of the occasion for this arrest. What, what brings Paul to this point where he's having to give this defense speech before this angry mob? And then I want to look, uh, spend most of our time looking at this, this, the speech that Paul gives, focusing in specifically on Paul's encounter with the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus and how that changed him and why Paul is using that part of his story in his defense against this angry mob of Jews who had gathered together against him outside of the temple. 
And then I want us to think about uh, our own relationship with Jesus, what it means to, to meet Jesus, maybe not the same way that Paul met him, uh, but essentially in the same way. Uh, we may not meet him on the road like that, but, but Jesus still meets his people through his word, uh, through even coming to the Lord's table. And to ask the question, have you met Jesus? And if you have, what difference is that making in your life? And if you haven't, are you considering the claims that Jesus had made, has made and even the impact of those, that encounter on Paul's life? So let's look first at the occasion for Paul's arrest and defense that leads to this speech about his personal encounter with Jesus. Just a very quick summary of the part that we didn't read. At the end of chapter 21, part of what's happened is Paul has finally arrived in Jerusalem. Last week we talked about how he was dead set, he was aiming for Jerusalem, and even against the pleading of the disciples along the way who were telling him, don't go, don't go, because of the hardship that he was going to face, Paul was headed toward Jerusalem because he knew that's what the Lord was calling him to do. Well, he's finally arrived. He is... Uh, received with gladness by the church in Jerusalem and even meets with the leaders in that church. Particularly, he meets with James, the brother of Jesus, uh, and the elders of the church there. And as they meet with Paul, they're trying to kind of navigate the difficult situation of being Jewish, being Christian in Jerusalem, the heart of first century Judaism. And part of the challenge that they're facing as Jewish Christians in the midst of other Jews who are not Christians is word has kind of traveled back to Jerusalem. It's not an accurate word, but you know how th those things go. Uh, word has traveled back to Jerusalem, and people are hearing that Paul, this former Pharisee, this rabbi who has been converted to faith in Jesus, that as he's going about on these missionary journeys, he's telling Jews... You don't have to worry about the law of Moses. You can abandon all of these customs of our fathers. You, can, uh, you don't have to worry about circumcising your, your, your boys. And, and, and so this word has come back that Paul is abandoning the law and teaching others among the Jews in particular to do the same. And this is causing trouble in Jerusalem, particularly now that Paul, has ba Paul is back. James says, they're going to hear that you're back. And this is going to cause some trouble, so we've got a solution for the trouble. So they tell Paul, there's four guys. They've taken a vow. Uh, it's probably a Nazarite vow. You can read about it in number six. But either way, they've taken some vow. And part of that vow is after, at the end of 30 days, they've got to go and make an offering at the temple. They've got to pay uh, something as an offering, and then they shave their heads at the end of this vow. Aren't you glad that we don't have to engage in these types of things anymore? We have to shave your head at the end of a vow. Uh, at any rate, there's these four guys, and James says to Paul, you kind of sponsor them. Take on their expenses and go with them to the temple to fulfill their vow so that uh, their offering will be made, and then they can shave their heads. And then everybody will see that you're a faithful Jew. Paul agrees to this. There's debate about whether he should have agreed to it or not. We're not going to... I don't have a strong opinion about that, but he agrees to it either way, goes to the temple, and while he is at the temple, Jews from Asia, Ephesus, remember all the trouble Paul had in Ephesus, Jews from Asia show up, and these are not believing Jews, these are uh, uh, not Christians, and they start a riot 
outside of the temple. And they're pointing to Paul. This is the guy. This is the guy who's telling everyone everywhere to abandon the laws of Moses. And he's speaking against our people and against uh, the laws and the customs that we are adhering to. And he's speaking against this place, the temple. And they say, we saw him bring a Gentile into the temple, which he had not. That's the occasion for this riot that we kind of jumped into in the middle here. They're, the crowd is stirred up. There's confusion. They're angry about the things that they are hearing about Paul, which are not true. And they have started this mob. They grab Paul. They begin to beat him right outside of the temple gates. They shut the gates so that he can't go in. And the Roman tribune hears about it. Tribune was the commander of about a thousand troops. He was stationed in the fortress right next to the temple. So this this uh, riot is not far from where he is. He sends soldiers down. They stop beating Paul. And as he's arresting Paul to carry him out of this violence, Paul says, let me speak to the people. That's the context for this speech that Paul gives. Paul has been arrested. Uh, he's being accused by these Jews of abandoning the law and of bringing Gentiles into the temple. And so now he's got to give his defense. And here's what we see at the heart of Paul's defense uh, to this Jewish crowd is this simple fact that explains everything that he's doing, why he's doing it. This simple fact Paul is giving in this speech is this, that he met Jesus and that Jesus had died and had risen from the dead, and Paul had met him on the road to Damascus. I want you to notice a couple things in this speech, the heart of Paul's defense, that he met Jesus. Notice the way he begins this speech. He appeals to them as a fellow Jew and works to kind of establish his credentials as a faithful Jew. Notice verses 1 through 5 there. He calls them brothers and fathers. He's one of them. As they hear that he's speaking in their language, they all quiet down and they pay attention a little bit. But notice he kind of presents his credentials as a Jew, almost as a way of saying, of all people, I, you should be surprised that I'm following Jesus because of my Jewish credentials. There's kind of a twist to it. But notice he points out in verse 3, I am a Jew born in Tarsus, this prestigious city. He received a... a a fancy, you might say, education. This is almost like going to the Harvard of Judaism. He was educated at the feet of Gamaliel in Jerusalem, this famous rabbi who taught there. He was educated according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, a reference to Paul being a Pharisee and, and, and strictly adhering to all of the customs, all of the traditions of the fathers and, and the Jude, uh, Judaic faith. He was even zealous for God, which is a way of saying he was so zealous, he was even willing to persecute those who deviated, which is what he points out in verse 4. Not only was he educated in the strictest line of their religion, being brought up in Jerusalem and educated there uh, as a Pharisee, but he was so zealous for God that he persecuted these Jews who were claiming that Jesus was the Messiah and that he had died, and that he had risen again from the dead. Paul couldn't tolerate this as a Jew, and so he had persecuted them, 
bringing them into prison, even standing by approving and guarding the coats of those who stoned Stephen, as you read about in Acts chapter 7. Now, why does Paul bring up his Jewish credentials here? In a way, at the very least, he's saying, I'm one of you. You're accusing me of all these things, but I'm really one of you. I know what it's like to be you. But, but part of what he's saying, too, is that for him, the things that he believed qualified him before God actually turned out to be disqualifying for him because he had put his trust in those things that he had done. We read in Philippians 3 in particular when Paul writes about his own background to the church in Philippi, he says, look, you know, if anybody has any reason to boast and have confidence in who they are and the things that they did, it's me. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee of Pharisees, according to the law, blameless and righteous according to our own standards. Paul's view of himself before meeting Jesus was that if a test was given to see if he would get into heaven and be right with God, that he was confident that he would pass it because of the things that he had done. He believed he was qualified on the basis of his own merit and of his own works, even being so zealous as to persecute those who were following Jesus and believing that he was doing so as an act of worship to God, being right with him. Paul appeals to this and basically is saying that the things that he thought qualified him before God actually turned out to be disqualifying. But part of what this speech, kind of the question that this raises in the minds of those who are standing there hearing Paul, the question that, is, that, raises, that it raises for them is this. How is it that Paul, formerly Saul, this strict Pharisee, uh, adhering to the law, blameless according to the law, hating even the name of Jesus and those who were following him, how is it that he could be suddenly radically changed and now become this proclaimer of the truth that he once persecuted and hated before? What was it that would change Paul from, from saying that those who follow Jesus should be put to death to now being one who worshiped Jesus and who proclaimed him. What is it that would move Paul from hatred of Jesus to love of Jesus? And as he points out in verses 6 through 16, there's only one answer. Paul met Jesus. I want you to kind of put yourself in Paul's shoes for just a moment and consider why Paul was so vehemently against Christians before he met Jesus. Just a few things to point out. First, Paul was a moralist. He was a moralist. Now, what do we mean by that? Paul believed that the way to be right with God was based on things that he did. Now, he wasn't so crass as to come out and say, it's all the things that I do and God has nothing to do with it. Paul's much more like the Pharisee in the story that Jesus tells when he talks about the Pharisee and the tax collector. You remember this story. Two men go to the temple to pray. The first is a Pharisee. And what does the Pharisee do? He approaches the altar to pray and he lifts his eyes up to heaven. But what are the first words out of his mouth in this self-righteous prayer that he makes? He says, God, I thank you 
that I'm not like other people. He mentions God. He at least acknowledges that God is somehow at work in his life, even though he begins to take credit for all of the works that he's doing after that. Paul would have been much like that Pharisee in the story that Jesus told. God uh, was a part of the story. It was kind of a, a mixture of God's grace and Paul's obedience. That God had given him grace, but he would obey, and his obedience was enough to get him into heaven. He was a moralist. He even says he was blameless as to the law. And so for somebody to come along and to say to Paul, what you need is not more obedience of yourself, but what you need is the obedience of another, Jesus Christ, that would have angered Paul because he viewed himself as blameless, that his obedience was enough. And so there was some vehemence against this claim of Jesus, in part because Paul didn't think that he needed any help. He thought that he could do it himself, that his good works were enough. Another thing that led to it was Paul, believed, Paul couldn't fathom how a Messiah could be crucified. For, for us, we're, we're completely used to the idea of Jesus dying on a cross. It's at the heart of the Christian faith. And sometimes it's hard for us to understand what that would have meant to Jews in the first century to say, we worship Jesus as the Messiah, and he died on a cross. Uh, Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians that this was a stumbling block to Jews. Because for them, the Messiah was not supposed to come and die this cursed death on a Roman cross. The Messiah was to come and to kind of usher in this age of life and fruitfulness not die on a Roman cross. And so for Paul, it was, it was, he had no category for a Messiah who died on a cross because the Bible says the one who hangs on a tree is cursed. And how could the Messiah be cursed? And finally, the third thing that would have created this stumbling block for Paul is the very idea that Jesus had raised, risen from the dead in the first place. As a Pharisee, he believed in the resurrection. Uh, as opposed to the Sadducees, the other main Jewish group of, of the day. But for the Pharisees, the resurrection happened at the end. There was no category for a resurrection happening now and then something else happening later. And so for one man to rise from the dead in the middle of history and not at the end of history made no sense to Paul. He couldn't fathom it. So part of what Paul is doing is he's appealing to these Jews and he's saying, look, I'm one of you. I'm, I'm part of the strictest group that we've got. And, and I even hated Jesus and his people so much that I ran after them and persecuted them and brought them back to Jerusalem bound to send them to prison and even stood by while they killed Stephen after he testified to who Jesus was. All of the things that Paul thought qualified him, he now saw as disqualifiers. And the thing that changed his view was meeting Jesus. As he says in verse 6, he recounts this journey, this story. He was on his way to Damascus, a bright light from heaven and a voice, which for any faithful Jew, if there's a voice from heaven and a bright light, the voice you expect to hear is the voice of God. But he hears a voice and he says, who, who is this? And he realizes that the voice of God is the voice of Jesus. And now, all of a sudden, all of Paul's categories have to change. 
Everything he thought about himself has to change. Everything he thought he understood about the Bible now kind of comes into a clear picture because he realizes he has been missing the one thing that brings it all together, Jesus. And he meets Jesus on the road and he realizes that all of a sudden he understands the claims that Jesus made about himself and the claims that Jesus' followers were making about him, that he had died and he had risen from the dead. He understands that those claims were true. And as he later writes his own understanding of these events, he understands Jesus was cursed, but he was cursed for me in my place, that my obedience is not enough, that even the things that I think qualify me actually disqualify me when I trust in them, that even my best deeds are filthy rags before God. I need the perfect obedience of another in my place. I'm not enough. And he realizes that Jesus not only gives him righteousness, but was cursed in his place at the cross. And he sees that the resurrection of Jesus is Jesus's vindication for us, that he can't stay dead because he is a sinless substitute. This is where C.S. Lewis gets this idea from in the Chronicles of Narnia when he writes in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe about Aslan, the great lion, the great Jesus figure in the book. Aslan dies in the place of Edmund Pevensey, one of these four children from England who are transported into this magical world. Aslan gives his life in the place of Edmund, who's a traitor. And the, the white witch, this wicked character in the book, uh, she and all of her minions strap Aslan down to this great stone table, humiliate him, cut off his mane, and he's just completely humbled there uh, as he gives his life in the place of another and two of the Pevensey girls, or the Pevensey sisters, are watching from a distance, and they're weeping at the horror of what's happening to Aslan, and they, they fall asleep after Aslan has died, and as the morning is about to dawn, as the sun is rising, they hear all of a sudden the stone table on which Aslan has been laying to, to, be, to be killed. It, it breaks in pieces, and they look up, and Aslan is no longer there, and they realize all of a sudden uh, that he has come back to life. And they say, what happened? We thought you were dead. And Aslan tells them that even though the witch knew some deep magic, that there was a deeper magic before the dawn of time that said that if an innocent victim gave himself in the place of one who was a traitor, that the death of that innocent victim would actually break death and start to turn it backwards. And that's what happens with Jesus. Jesus is the innocent victim. Jesus is the sinless one, as Paul calls him here, the righteous one. And Jesus, in giving himself for us, for our sin, dies as a perfect sinless substitute so that death cannot hold him. And he rises again from the dead as the vindication, as the proof that the full penalty for our sin has been paid by his life, by his death in our place. All of this comes together for Paul because he meets Jesus. And he can't ignore Jesus anymore. He can't explain it away. And seeing Jesus face to face moves Paul's heart now from a place of hatred to a place of love. This claim that Jesus rose from the dead, that he really died for sins that he really rose from the dead. This is what makes the Christian faith unique. 
sets it apart from every other religion that you could ever study, that you could ever adhere to. No other religion makes the kinds of claims that Christianity makes. And at, at the heart of that is this challenge to us, this challenge that Paul was making to the Jews there, that if you're going to reckon with who Paul is, you have to deal with the fact of Jesus' resurrection. There's a, a story I heard recently of a, uh, a woman named Molly Worthen who teaches history at Chapel Hill. She's trained Ivy League uh, secular historian and a historian of Christianity in America. And I bought a book by, that she wrote several years ago called about evangelicals and the doctrine of inerrancy just because it was interesting. It, was an, it looked like an interesting read, but I didn't know anything else about her. And uh, she recently has been converted and come to Christ, and she was interviewed about her conversion. It's a long story. I won't get into all the details, but one particular detail was, uh, I think, crucially important. She talks about um, how she had become distracted by things that were important but secondary among Christian beliefs and behaviors. As an historian and kind of a journalist, she was studying evangelical churches, and she was getting distracted by things that were of secondary importance to Christian faith. And, and she realized as she began to investigate the claims of Jesus and began to meet with a, a pastor at a large church in Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, she began to realize that those things were distracting her from the one crucial issue that in all of her study, all of her academic pursuit, she had not dealt with this one central claim of Christianity, namely that Jesus rose from the dead. And this pastor, as he began to talk with her, he said, look, you're, you're getting distracted by all these other things, but the, the one thing you need to figure out and come to grips with is this claim that Jesus is risen. Is there any other event that could possibly explain what the Gospels tell us? That there's an empty tomb. That the disciples all testify that they can't ever recover the body of Jesus that it's not there, and that Jesus appears to his disciples, that he appears to Paul, and Paul is converted. Is there anything else that explains the worldwide spread of Christianity, even in the face of all opposition against it? Is there any other thing that can give an explanation for what the Bible says about the resurrection of Jesus? And as Molly Worthen began to investigate this, she realized she could not come up with any other answer because there is none. And once she realized that Jesus had risen from the dead, she said she stopped praying, God, if you're real, help me to know, reveal yourself to me. And she began to pray, Jesus, you are my Lord, you are my Savior, and just trying it on for size. And as she came to grips with the fact of the resurrection, all of these other kind of secondary items began to fall into their proper place. And she could struggle with them, she could deal with them, but they weren't a distraction because she realized if Jesus is really alive, if, if he is risen from the dead, then you have to deal with the claims that he makes on your life. You have to deal with what he says about your sin. And you, you have to listen to him when he says, repent and believe that there's forgiveness for you. You, you can't ignore Jesus any longer once you come to this realization that he is indeed risen from the dead. This was Paul's testimony. He met Jesus, and he could no longer ignore him. He could no longer explain it away. 
The sad irony of this defense, though, is that the Jews missed the point. Because Paul gets to the end of his speech, and he says, This same Jesus that I met on the road to Damascus, who I now believe is alive, this same Jesus appeared to me, and he said, Go, I'm sending you far away to the Gentiles. And at the mention of the Gentiles, the Jews erupt in this uh, anger toward Paul. There's, at this time in Jerusalem, a spirit of intense Jewish nationalism that has kind of brought about this more intense hatred for Gentiles. And they think Paul has brought a Gentile into the temple, which he hadn't. But at the mention of the Gentiles, this crowd erupts in anger, and they no longer will listen to Paul, which is unfortunate because it means that they missed the very central claim that Paul was making. That the Jesus who died rose again and that Paul had met him on the road to Damascus. Instead, they got distracted by an important but a secondary issue, namely the mentioning of the Gentiles. And they missed the main point that Jesus is indeed the risen Lord. In the 18th century, there were two um, British lawyers who decided together that they would try to disprove the claims of Christianity, of the Christian faith. And they realized that there were kind of two pillars that they needed to attack in order to do this successfully. Uh, The one pillar was the claim that Jesus had risen from the dead, and the other was Paul's conversion. They they figured out if, if they could explain the claims of the resurrection away, and if they could explain Paul's conversion Away, then they could kind of dismantle Christianity and show that there was no reason to believe it. So these two guys come up with this plan. They each kind of go their separate ways. One of them was tackling the resurrection. One of them was tackling the conversion of Saul. They met back together and began to discuss the things that they were learning in this investigation. And both of them, as they gathered, began to say to each other, I I need to confess something to you. The more I investigate this, the less confident I am that I can dismiss these claims. And the other said, me too. I'm having trouble finding a way to explain away the resurrection. I'm having trouble finding a way to explain Paul's conversion in any other way. So they go back, they continue their work. At the end of their study, both of the men are converted to Christ through trying to undermine the claim of Jesus' resurrection and trying to explain away Paul's own conversion, trying to give some other human explanation to how Saul the Pharisee could become Paul the Christian. And they couldn't do it. So instead of publishing the book they thought they were writing, they both published these books defending the historicity of the resurrection and the, the supernatural nature of that and of Paul's own conversion. As Paul... Witnesses to these Jews here, he focuses on one central point, that he met Jesus. And in meeting Jesus, he had met a person who had died and who was really alive, and therefore one whose claims had to be taken seriously and could not be dismissed, could not be ignored. But further, in that encounter, he had met the one who loved him enough to give his life in his place. Knowing all of Paul's ignorance, knowing all of his anger, all of his self-righteousness, all of his zeal without knowledge that aimed in the wrong direction against Jesus and his people, Jesus, knowing all of that, meets Paul and convinces him 
that he is loved beyond measure, and that as bad as his sins are, the cross of Jesus is more powerful than even his worst sins, that the righteousness of Jesus alone is enough to cover over Paul's filthy sins and his filthy rags to make him spotless before the living God. There's only one thing that can explain Paul's conversion. He met Jesus. And the good news is that Jesus is still meeting people today. Not in the same way that Paul met Jesus in bright, shining light and a voice from heaven, but he meets us through the ordinary means of his grace, through the word, through prayer, through coming to the table, even in the sacrament of baptism. Jesus is still meeting sinners today and inviting them to come to him and to find rest and forgiveness and salvation in him. If you've met Jesus, if you're a follower of Christ and you've given your life to him, you've submitted to him as Lord and found forgiveness through his grace, then like Paul, you've got a story. And your story might be messy, just like Paul's. It might involve a lot of ignorance and a lot of sin and a whole lot of tomfoolery and all manner of things that ought to disqualify you from being a part of God's kingdom. And yet the good news is Jesus is in control of that story, and the very things that disqualify you are the things that he uses to bring you to himself. If you're a follower of Christ and you've met Jesus, you've got a story, and it's a story of God's grace. It's a story of meeting the real risen Jesus. Don't be afraid to tell people what he's done for you, to testify to the reality of Jesus by his work in your life. If you've not met Jesus, maybe you're skeptical of his claims and the claims the scripture makes about who he is and, and what he's done, then, then let me encourage you to do this. Don't get distracted by the strange things that are often difficult to deal with in the Bible or even among Christians who can sometimes be a strange group. Don't be distracted by those important but secondary things, but rather ask yourself this. Have you dealt with, have you reckoned with this central claim that Jesus who died rose again and that there's no other explanation for the empty tomb? There's no other explanation for these appearances of Jesus to his disciples and to Paul other than this, that he's a real person who died and who rose again from the dead and that he is at work today meeting sinners and bringing them into his kingdom. Have you dealt with those claims? Have you really reckoned with who Jesus is and who he claims to be and come to terms with that. If you've not, then I would encourage you, read the Gospels, see who Jesus is, and ask yourself those questions as you read those stories of who Christ is and what he came to do and see if you can come up with any other explanation. I would challenge you in that way. Paul was arrested for proclaiming Christ and he used that opportunity to speak to the Jews who were gathered there against him. And at the heart of that defense was this wonderful claim that he had met Jesus and that Jesus had changed him. Have you met Jesus? Has he changed you? Would you pray with me?